Woi woi, woi woi, woi woi. Then it then go on the radio again. Yo, if you wanna smoke free weed, go board yourself. You need to go plant a seed. Go board yourself, make your knowledge increase. Go board yourself, go board yourself. Hey, all right. Welcome to episode number 14 of Grow Bud Yourself. We got a great show for you guys today. We're talking with Paul Armentado, uh, the deputy director of Normal, about some cannabis policy issues. Then the interview is with hash maker The Dank Duchess about making hash and judging hash and smoking hash. And then we have a great cultivation segment about seeds and the breakdown between regular seeds, feminized seeds, and autoflowering seeds. And as always, questions from listeners answered by me and uh stick around for a great episode number 14 all right we are back and episode 14 is underway yeah we're, we're up to 14 man that's amazing and we haven't uh, we haven't missed a uh a air date yet every yeah. thursday that's right that's you right. know, Pretty late exciting. on Thursday, but still on Thursday. So that's good. 14. That's right. That's right. And uh, yeah, like we mentioned last week, uh, we've been hard at work together. The premiere first issue of uh, Northeast Leaf Magazine as well. Uh, so that's exciting. And people can check out anyleafmag.com uh, if they're interested in finding out more about that, um, you know, or subscribing or, you know, anything, basically contributing, distributing, advertising uh, and getting involved, you know. Yeah, it's pretty cool. The first uh, issue's cover is starting to come together also, and it looks like that's going to be really good as well. So. Yeah, we got a great artist working on that. Speaking of great artists, we also have an, a, a logo redesigned for the show. So the Grow Bud Yourself logo uh, is going to be changing soon. Uh, we got our friend Steph uh, working on a new one, and that's going to be exciting too. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm psyched to uh, start putting out some merch yeah, you know, we um the the logo currently is a bit of a placeholder, so we got one of our old high times uh, guys who, you know, uh, he's not with that company anymore, but he does his own graphic design thing now and he's putting the logo together, so as Dan mentioned, we should have that in the uh, coming weeks and we're really excited to put that on, you know, coffee cups and pencils, stickers, and stress balls. Yeah. Yeah, anything. We're going to we're going to have a masks. Bunch, we're going to have a bunch of merch for for people. Uh, and particularly for, you know, Patreon supporters as well. We love our, our patrons on Patreon. Um, yeah. Yeah. Are we really going to do uh, merch? That sounds awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so that's exciting. And I'm exciting. Yeah. I'm excited to have, uh, you know, our guest, the dank Duchess coming up later in the show. Um, but we also have a, a great update from our friend, Paul Armentado, the deputy director of Normal, uh, which, uh, yeah, he was kind enough to come on the show. I think that's pretty awesome. Yeah, it is. You know, we had some uh, cannabis policy questions. And uh, if you do, you know, Paul's a great guy to go to. So um, what do you think? Should we go to him right now? Yeah, let's talk. Let's chat with Paul. All right. So we are uh, thrilled to be joined uh, by Paul Armentano. Paul, uh, of course, many of our listeners uh, are, are aware, is a, a cannabis policy expert with uh, decades of experience. And he's currently the uh, deputy director of NORML, National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws. 
Uh, welcome to the show, Paul Armentano. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thanks for coming on. Uh, yeah, another thing Paul does is he writes a hell of an op-ed. <laughs> <laughs> Very well known uh, in the industry for that, for sure. Uh, and Paul, your your uh, timing coming on the show really couldn't be better because um, earlier this week, as many people know, uh, the Democrats rejected uh, cannabis legalization from their party platform. So uh, we were hoping to to get your your take on that, and then maybe even more broadly, your take on uh, rescheduling versus descheduling. Sure. Uh, so as far as the rejection of legalization. Obviously, that is disappointing, but it's not altogether surprising. We are talking about a candidate in Joe Biden that in many ways was the architect of the modern day war on drugs. Now, it does appear that in the last few years, he has revisited some of these issues He may have had a change of heart with respect to some of these issues, but this is somebody who is being moved with respect to criminal justice reform largely by those around him. I don't think these are changes that are coming organically from him. And as a result, he remains in many ways somewhat of a drug warrior, and he is very skittish with respect to marijuana policy. So again, knowing all of that, it is hardly surprising that he would not endorse a full-throated legalization and instead his platform uh, essentially takes positions that are out of step with public opinion, especially the public opinion of Democrats, uh, and in many ways are, are somewhat intellectually and scientifically dishonest as well. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a shame that... Uh... There's no one there. It seems like, you know, he has surrounded himself with some progressive voices and people who would understand. Um, like you said, it's overwhelmingly that that, you know, Democratic voters support even Republican voters support legalization at this point. Uh, so it's really not even a partisan issue. Uh, you know, I mean, I guess, you, uh, you know, they support it at a, at a smaller rate, but still a majority of, of Republicans, I think, support some form of legalization or decrim, right? Yeah, you're correct. When we look at national polling, whether it's from Gallup or from Pew or any of these other uh, largely respected polling firms, we see that Democrats, about uh, seven in 10 of self-identified Democrats say they support legalization. And about 55% of uh, self-identified Republicans say they support legalization as well. Uh, When we look at all uh, those of all political ideologies, in many cases, we find a super majority of American voters, somewhere around 66, 67% uh, say that marijuana ought to be legal, not decriminalized, not reducing penalties, but it ought to be legal and regulated uh, like we regulate alcohol right now. Yeah, exactly. And that, uh, you know, brings us to the scheduling idea because alcohol, uh, you know, nicotine, um, you know, things like that are not on a drug schedule uh, at all, not schedule one, not schedule five and nothing in between. Uh, so why is, you know, rescheduling or taking it from one to two or three, uh, you know, why is that even a suggestion as far as, you know, a way to, you know, mitigate, uh, you know, these laws? 
I think what we're seeing here, again, is a candidate who is not thoroughly familiar with this issue and is in many ways uh, going off a playbook from two, three decades ago. Uh, it wasn't totally uncommon in the 1980s or the 1990s, for instance, to hear candidates call for rescheduling cannabis. Uh, but we have moved well beyond that as a society today in 2020. And we recognize that rescheduling at best is only half a loaf. Look, the American public is clear. They don't want the federal government to treat cannabis like heroin which is what it does now by classifying the plant as a Schedule One controlled substance. But you know what else they don't want? They don't want to treat cannabis like cocaine or methamphetamine or fentanyl or oxycodone, which are all drugs that are placed currently in lesser schedules. The reality is, is the American public wants states to have the autonomy to set their own cannabis policies. And they want those states to have the option, if they wish to, to legalize and regulate the commercial production and retail sale of cannabis. That's like what the states currently do with alcohol. The reason the states have that authority with alcohol is because, as you said, Danny, alcohol is not in the CSA. It's not Schedule 1, 2, 3, 4, or 5. It is descheduled. Right. And also, isn't there some type of conflict because uh, I believe you mentioned off the air that the FDA has to approve anything that's on uh, any of the schedules as well? So, in fact, when you look at the definition of Schedule 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5 drugs, they all have very distinct definitions under the law. Every substance that is classified as a Schedule 2 through 5 uh, drug under the law possesses what is known as accepted medical utility in the United States. For decades, the federal government has defined what is accepted medical utility very narrowly, and they have defined it as FDA drug approval. So in fact, every substance that you will find in the CSA that is scheduled two, three, four, or five has gone through FDA phase three clinical trials, has gone through an FDA review, and the FDA has deemed that substance to possess medical utility. It would be unprecedented for a substance that the FDA has never determined to have therapeutic efficacy to be placed in any of those uh, two through five schedules. And in fact, in practical terms, I don't necessarily even think it could be done. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, but uh, taking this back to the original point, and perhaps for our listeners who maybe don't follow this quite as closely as uh, as the people here. Um, so rescheduling, which would be um, moving cannabis to a lower schedule in the Controlled Substances Act versus uh, descheduling, removing it entirely. Um, how does that fit into uh, what is going on with the Democrats policy and more specifically with uh, Biden's view on on legalization or decrim? Well, it, it's, it's in some ways very hard to decipher because on the one hand, we have the Joe Biden for president website uh, opining that the administration or a Biden administration would in fact reschedule cannabis from schedule one to schedule two. Now, keep in mind, that would be the same schedule uh, that cocaine 
is currently placed in, that methamphetamine is currently placed in, that oxycodone is currently placed in. Uh, I don't think when the average person thinks of cocaine, uh, they define this as a legal or legally accessible substance because the restrictions on a Schedule II substance are uh, quite severe and dramatic. On the other hand, we have the Biden administration saying that, for instance, they want states to be the ultimate arbiters of marijuana policy. Well, that is not the case with a Schedule II substance. Uh, If the state of Connecticut tomorrow uh, wanted to make cocaine, for instance, legally accessible to anyone over the age of 21, that would be in conflict with federal law because you would not be permitted, a state would not be permitted to have that authority to take that position with a Schedule II controlled substance. So it doesn't appear that the Biden administration uh, even really understands the legal ramifications of what it is proposing. The goals that the administration has put out there, uh, decriminalizing uh, at the state level, allowing states to have this authority, uh, facilitating clinical research, these are all admirable goals, but they're not accomplished by rescheduling cannabis from one to two. It's very interesting. And I know that we could uh, talk about this uh, for quite a long time, but we are a little short on time. And I did want to get to this last uh, bit here before we have to let you go. So we got an email from uh, one of our listeners, Hazy Jay-Z, and I think this is something that's on a lot of people's minds. So while we had you on the show, we wanted to run it by you. Uh, He wrote us uh, that it's become clear to me that I will not be getting called back to work uh, this year, if ever. Uh, With that being the case, I'm now looking for a new career path, and I'm thinking about getting into the cannabis industry. The question that I have is about drug testing. Do you get drug tested for employment? Uh, Do they random uh, drug test or mandatory test you? Uh, what should I expect as far as drug testing goes in the industry? So uh, could you could you offer any advice here to Hazy Jay-Z? Sure. So the cannabis industry is expanding by leaps and bounds. I just saw a report uh, yesterday estimating 300,000 full-time jobs in this industry by the end of this year. So we're talking about an industry that is now uh, larger than, for instance, uh, the domestic industry from com- for computer programmers. So it is not as if every player in this industry, every employer in this industry uh, is going to approach this the same way. My understanding is that many players uh, in this space do not impose a suspicionless drug testing uh, for marijuana for their employees. So in many ways, uh, depending on the sort of job this individual is applying to, this may not even be uh, a legitimate concern. Uh, What we also see in the broader context of all this, in the sort of uh, conventional business world at large, is that in many ways, industries, companies are pulling back uh, from the sort of drug testing zeitgeist of the 1980s. Uh, Employee drug testing is far less popular today among uh, conventional businesses than it was 10 or 20 years ago. And in fact, in a handful of jurisdictions like Nevada, like Maine, like the District of Columbia, like New York City, uh, within the past few months, we've seen legislation enacted either at the state level or on the regional level, actually prohibiting uh, many employers from imposing pre-employment drug testing uh, for marijuana. 
So again, I think there's a growing recognition uh, among commercial industries that drug testing for cannabis just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. All right. Well, uh, that certainly was very helpful. We really appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, if people want to get in touch with you, if they have policy questions or tips or anything, how would uh, they go about reaching you? I am reachable uh, through the uh, normal website, and you can reach me via email at paul, P-A-U-L, at normal, N-O-R-M-L dot O-R-G. And I certainly encourage folks who want to stay up to date on the very uh, latest political advancements and scientific advancements and cultural advancements when it comes to marijuana policy to uh, regularly check out the normal website and the normal blog at N-O-R-M-L dot O-R-G. I also want to give a shout out to uh, Oaksterdam University, where I am on the faculty. Uh, for any folks who want to learn, really do a deep dive uh, into many of these issues we've talked about or potentially get in uh, uh, someday to the marijuana space. Uh, Oaksterdam's a great place to start, and we have plenty of online, including some free online classes available now. All right. Well, thank you so much, Paul Armentano. We really appreciate it. And uh, we'll be back with more Grow Bud Yourself. All right. So thank you to Paul Armentano uh, from Normal uh, for that update on what's going on. Uh, And, you know, he's just known for countering all of the drug war propaganda with, you know, facts and science and uh, a really just a very keen understanding of the issues at large. And, uh, you know, what he said, you know, about some confusion in the Biden campaign is interesting, but, you know, I don't think it's going to change the way that I vote uh, coming up. So, because, no, no. <laughs> yeah. you know, other things There's, are important also. Exactly. And, yeah. you know, yeah, yes, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, that's uh, thank you to Paul for coming on. And we have a great segment coming up with the Dank Duchess as well. She's an incredible hash maker uh, and very passionate about uh, cannabis extraction. You may have watched some of her very popular YouTube videos. Uh, She is a force to be reckoned with in the hashish world. So I think without further ado, we should, we should get right to some hash making tips from the Dank Duchess. All right. Welcome back. And uh, we have a very special guest with us this week. We have a amazing hash maker and uh, just a wonderful person as well. We have the Dank Duchess with us on Grow Bud Yourself. Welcome. I'm excited. <laughs> I'm really excited to be here. I'm sorry. I can't smile any bigger. <laughs> I appreciate it. We've had the opportunity to meet uh, a few times over the past few years. Uh, and I've had the uh, the wonderful opportunity to taste some of the amazing hashish that you have made. Uh, and I know that you, you know, you go out of your way to teach people uh, the, the proper techniques for creating uh, fresh frozen full melt, you know? And so we're going to get into that. But first, um, can you just tell me a little bit about um, your earliest experiences with cannabis and, and what, what drew you to, uh, to the plant? Sure. 
Well, actually, I was completely anti-cannabis. I mean, like completely, completely anti-cannabis. I went all the way through college, just, you know, say no to drugs. Nancy Reagan, I really, really believed in that um, idea. However, it, I always say it just seems so simple, but a piece of glass, a beautiful piece of glass was sitting on my table. My boyfriend, now husband, um, was really into smoking cannabis. And I really used to berate him like almost three years. I'm like, you're so smart of a person. Why would you do this? And he had a piece of glass and it was so perfect that as a designer, I felt like anything that had something to do with this piece of glass couldn't possibly, couldn't possibly be bad because it was so perfectly done. And so I said the key words, I'm going to try it. I have to tell you, my husband like jumped over the table to give me like a, a light to, so I could have a little bit of, of that cannabis. And once I had cannabis the very first time and I realized that I could still do calculus with no problem. See, that was my big issue as a math major in college. I really felt like I just had my brain to rely upon. I became a super pothead like the next day. Literally, I smoked cannabis every single day until we ran out of money. And then we realized that we needed to grow. It was just like that. It was a practicality situation of, I need to grow cannabis because I cannot afford the cannabis I'm trying to smoke. And I'm trying to smoke all this cannabis because my life had been so regimented in black and white. And cannabis for the first time had given me all the grays. And I really just wanted to to just try it at all. That really was it. It was, I was anti it then switched up and was so pro cannabis, did all the research I could possibly do. I have to be honest. I read a whole bunch of your articles. You know, I've told people I couldn't get on the internet because I was in Florida and we were really, really nervous about like the feds coming or something based on IPs and stuff. So it was really magazines and being able to, to get some semblance of what cannabis was that really started me off on the, on the cannabis journey. So thanks. Thanks a lot. <laughs> right. Well, I appreciate it. Um, now, uh, that journey brought you to concentrates and hashish in particular. Um, let's talk about that, uh, that discovery. Okay. That was also a discovery of just like happenstance. It happened at high times, 2014, uh, NorCal high times. I, uh, had discovered dabbing a couple years prior and my husband and I, we were dabbing everywhere. We had already made the decision that we were going to move to California so that we could grow a lot of cannabis. Um, and so we were dabbing everywhere. And what happened is that we came upon a booth. I'm sure you've seen the booth many times, Danny, the aficionado booth. It was so nicely done. Like everything about it was just a little extra, extra touch, the leather couches and everything. And so I muscled to the front to see what was the, the big hoopla because there were so many people around that booth. And I was very disappointed, very disappointed because instead of beautiful golden dabs, it's like hunks of chocolate, just, just lumps of chocolate all over the place. <laughs> and, and I don't happen to like chocolate. So I turned around kind of like, Ugh. There's nothing but chocolate over here. You know, what, what's the big deal? And um, this little man goes, this is not chocolate. This is hashish. I said, well, can you dab it? But of course. So I dabbed with him and he turned out to be Frenchie Cannoli. So a month later at another event, by this time I had moved to California at HempCon, I met up with him and asked him for coffee. 
couple days later, we were just talking about designing websites in the 90s and such. But I realized I didn't know anything about Hatch. Like I had had smallest amounts of Hatch through the years, but I didn't know anything about it. And this man was obsessed with it, like obsessed with it. And so he asked me if I would write for Weed World Magazine about Hashish. And I didn't know anything about it. And he said, in order for me to be able to write about it with any authority, I need to learn how to make hash. Make hash. Now, mind you, I was not happy about that. I was kind of like, I came over here to grow weed and do something with media. And this man wants me to make hash. What do I care about that? Of course, I had no idea who Frenchie Cannoli was. Like, no, he was a little funny little French man that liked to yell at people about resin. And that was it. Um, but it was like, I fell into hash making. And then that one day of making hash in September of 2014 changed my life. After that, I was a hash maker. That, that was it. <laughs> That's, that was my focus. <laughs> Amazing. And and when you speak about hash, um, you're talking about fresh frozen full melt uh, as like the the ideal sort of uh, solventless concentrate. Actually, not at all, because and I will say this, look, I feel that within the cannabis industry and a lot of things in society, we're always comparing. Right. So when I started making hash initially, it was on dried material and you can make phenomenal hash. You can get definitely six star hash from um from dry material. Fresh frozen, which is now, it seems to be peaking every single day. And in popularity, fresh frozen affords a different slice of the flavor. So I like to look at fresh frozen and cured, like really good grape juice and wine. No one's anti-grape juice, no one's anti-wine, right? But fresh frozen does have the ability to capture the flavor right at that time of, you know, the plant being cut since it's so quickly bagged, you know, within two hours, it's so quickly bagged. And then the trichomes haven't had the opportunity to dry. So they ha they have a tendency to be more manipulatable, man I don't know that that's a word, e more easily manipulated when you're dealing with the banger and such. So you can get fantastic six star, but you can get terrible, terrible non-melt from fresh frozen as well. Again, it comes down to how it was grown. You as the grower, you know, it comes down to how it was grown, how it was handled, what the cultivar is and what you're going for. So and, and just to add another layer to that, I started really doing a lot of dry sift, and I'm in love with dry sift right now. So you can get so much six star from dry sift, and it's a another way of capturing the terpenes in a. It's another way of capturing the terpenes without wor worrying about the water solubility of some terpenes, which leads some people to say, "Oh, I like to keep all my terps intact, so I like dry sift." Now, at the end of the day, there's a lot of flexing, but there are many different things that you can have. As long as it's done well, you can get six star out of it. Right. So whether you're using, uh, you know, uh, ice water extraction or uh, a dry sifting method, which is without, you know, ice to just using screens, the goal is the goal is to isolate the gland heads yep. um, before they've had a chance to uh, deteriorate or open up or anything like that and remove stalks and any other you know green leaf material or anything else that might uh sort of contaminate that and that's why people call it full melt because when you have just the heads um you end up with a with a, a product that you can basically dab just like a, a bho yeah. um but take us through the process okay um assuming you've you've grown some amazing cannabis mm -hmm. and you harvest it within two hours of of cutting it down, you need to 
immediately put that in a freezer, uh, you know, chop it down, obviously, uh, into manageable pieces, and then put it that in a freezer. And what are you trying to do? Uh, you know, what are you, are you preserving the trichomes? Are you preserving, uh, you know, the glands themselves? You know, why freeze it so quickly? Okay, well, after two hours, what you will start to see is A, B, uh, trichomes will continue to mature. So when we have frozen the the plants, now you want to touch them as little as possible. So we're talking about this big family thing and bucking them down and that's it. You don't want to take buds and chop them up. None of that. No chopping of buds. Once buds are about the size of a good size strawberry, you're fine at that. Of course, you have something that has buds that are like this. You're more worried about bud rot than anything else, but you know, you want to do as little uh, manipulation as possible. What happens is it's like a moment in time. You have frozen the material. There is not, the, the trichomes aren't falling off. Maturity isn't continuing. And when it's time to wash, see, everything about making hash comes down to all of the variables. It's not just like really well grown, but it's warm and your water is warm and it has chlorine in it and blah, blah, blah. It has to be across the board. So when you're doing, taking the time to do something like fresh frozen, you have to do it all, all well because the cost involved, no one's doing fresh frozen of trim. So most of the time it's really nice nugs. Even if it's small buds, that's money involved right there. That's, you're not doing $75 a pound trim, right? So everything about fresh frozen is about moving fast and efficiently so that you can agitate the material to get the heads off without A, the water getting warm or the environment being warm, which will lead to chlorophyll, uh, chlorophyll being leaked out. If you've ever picked up some hash that looks like it would be great, but it has a bit of an olive tint, that is the chlorophyll that has leaked out and has attached itself to the heads. And there's no amount of sieving or water washing or anything that is going to remove that green. And once you have that green in there, it means that you're not going to get six star because once there is any plant contaminant, that is going to char on the banger and there's going to be some residue left off. So when you're you when you're doing fresh frozen, you have the benefit of using young, supple plants that really just need to be washed really quickly and then processed really well. And then you're going to get what you, you know, what you're going to what you should get. You know, these days we're all about the freeze dryer. I am not a person that says the freeze dryer is better than air drying. However, if you take in consideration all the variables at hand, time, you know, the average air dry is going to be five to seven days. If you live in Colorado, it might be two to three days, but then you're dealing with hashes drying too fast. Whereas the freeze dryer is going to be done in 24 hours and if done properly is going to give you the most discreet heads, no moisture and ready to be used in any further process. So, um, you know, Right now, the, the, the highest standard, people are saying, you know, this is fresh frozen and it's freeze dried. I can tell you fresh frozen, freeze dried can come out terribly, but if it's done well, very few things top it. And when it comes down to stuff like doing cups and such like that, you know, I, I judge several cups. At the end of the day, it's the freeze dried, fresh frozen that's going to win. That's just how it is. Right. And so it sounds like it's very important uh, during the process to maintain a very cold, uh, room and a very cold, uh, you know, water. Uh, and, and so, but also I think the amount of agitation is important as well, because you can 
easily over agitate. Is that correct? Yes, you definitely can over agitate material. Um, sometimes we're really trying to get that extra two or three or 10 grams, right? And so it's just, you, you push it. Oh, sorry. You push it. The thing about making hash, which is so, super different than doing BHO or even CO2, is that there's no opportunity to step back and just let your mind wander. As you're watching the machine, or even if you're doing it by hand, every single batch is different. So you have to be aware of all the conditions. What is the resin? When the resin looks like this and the, the sound of the machine is like this, all of these things come into play. So that's necessary. You know, it's just not just, just cold water. Your water needs to be super, super cold. We're talking about 32, 32.5 cold, not 40 degrees. That might be cold for our hands. But the problem with that is that you're not going to get the resin off. See, a lot of times people think bubble hash is really complicated, but it's super simple. If you think of the trichome stalk and right where the head, the trichome itself, right where the head um, meets with the stock is the abscission point. The idea is to snap this off as cleanly as possible so that so that A, you don't have ripped heads. It's very much like using an orange. You know, if you pull an orange off the tree, it's still, it, it's pretty solid, but it still has that place where there can be entrance of, of anything. If you sat it in colored water, it'll be inches of, so the idea when you're washing is for it to be cold enough so you can be efficient so that you can end your process. Often people will look at their bags and they're not getting enough. And so they really decide they're gonna push it. It's not warm enough. And what will happen is that the material gets so beat up that it, it, it becomes brittle. And then again, you have particulate that sticks to the trichomes that cannot possibly be you know, properly washed down. And then you have bad hash. So all in effort of going a little bit more then the whole thing is just thrown to the garbage. And that's the worst. Right. And now you mentioned that, uh, you know, people can have uh, overly moist hash and that's definitely a problem, but also that it can be overly dry and over vacked. Uh, what's a way that people can avoid, you know, over vacking and over drying their glands and, and that results kind of in a, in a shrunken gland head? It does do that. I'm going to have to tell you, Danny, in all the years I've been seeing fresh, I mean, freeze dried material since 2015. I would say 1% is overdrive. It's most of the times people are under drying their material. And then the way I know that is because since, you know, when I write about other hash makers, I don't have to like go through all of their hash. I can smoke a little bit. So I've had hash for, for years on a counter and all the big names, I'll tell you, you open them and you're dealing with a lot of mold from time to time because Thing, people don't want to overdry. They're so afraid of overdrying, thinking that their terps are going to be pulled out, you know, terribly and such like that. And you want a look, the, the kind of greasy look that is possible to get even with high quality with a little bit of moisture. People often make the mistake on that. So when when I want to make sure that I'm not over drying something or under drying something, at the end of the day, test batches are the way to go. So if you know you have 20 pounds of GG4 to wash, well, get out your small machine, 337 grams, wash that, dry that, see where you are. And it's really trial and error. After a while, you get to see certain families, uh, you know, something that's heavy in the cookie side has a tendency to take this amount of time to dry, where something else that might be sandier might dry faster. But there's no like hard and fast rule other than trial and error. At the, we are always doing R&D. And so do it small, do it right, and then you can scale up on everything else. 
Right. You mentioned uh, a certain amount of grams of hash. Do, is is it possible to overstuff, uh, you know, your machine and, and have too much uh, plant material in there? To, sure. Yeah. 100%. Okay. So again, we're always trying to be most efficient. So the thought is if we, if we go big, we'll get a whole bunch of material, you know, a whole bunch of resin out to come out. Very untrue. If you don't allow enough space for the whipping action to work, then what happens is you just have a machine that is just like, <laughs> it's not really doing anything. And then your yield suffers so badly. I mean, I can't tell you how many times that I've gone past. My number is on a small machine, 337 grams. I can't tell you how many times I've done like a pound, a little bit more than a pound. And I, it just would have been better if I had just done two half pound machines, you know? And uh, this is the type of thing you learn over time. But, you know, I, I mean, it's been six years and I still mess it up. <laughs> often enough that I can check myself like you know what slow and steady so better to do two batches uh rather than one big one in that case now assuming you've done everything correctly um you have kept the environment very very cold um you've freeze-dried to a perfect consistency uh what about storage um what sort of container would you recommend and where would you recommend people store their hash to keep it because uh, ultimately, even room temperature can melt this type of hash, right? Mm -hmm, for sure. So, uh, you know, no matter what, glass. Nothing is better than glass. Nothing is as bad as silicone and plastic. Nothing with silicone. Terpenes are caustic. They will continuously eat at the silicone. So glass. Glass is just is the best for everything. Now, with glass... It offers you lots of versatility and it's easily cleanable and glass can go into the freezer. Glass cannot go into the freezer. So if you want your material to stay in that nice granular form after it came out of the freeze dryer and you want it to stay that white or creamy white color, definitely keep your resin at least in the refrigerator. But it'd be totally fine if you kept it in the freezer, in the freezer, not on your counter. If you want to be able to keep hash on your counter, you need to press that. Frenchy style into a temple ball because that allows for just the outside to be, you know, exposed to oxidation or any heat while the inside is being still constantly changed as time goes on. But if you want it to stay nice and white, it has to go in the freezer because what happens is that terpenes change color. Terpenes are initially clear often, but they will change to an amberish color besides the fact that THCA converts to THC, which converts to CBN, which is also reddish. So if you want to keep that color, it's imperative to stay as cold as possible. I'll tell you, when I go from the freeze dryer, like when I worked in the lab where I worked in the freeze dryer and then went into the walk-in, the walk-in freezer itself, if that process took more than a couple of minutes, you could see the difference between the first, you know, just frozen and things that have been waiting around for 10 minutes. And in this market that is so concerned with color, that matters. So keep it in the freezer. Keep in the freezer, you'll be safer. One thing about keeping the freezer, this is super important though. If you are trying to flex with your friends, don't take the stuff out of the freezer and then open it up to show to people. That's terrible. The difference in temperature will cause condensation around the rim of the glass. And then when you close it, it's going to seal moisture into the glass. 
So if you know your friends are coming over, you want to have a nice dab of some good stuff, take it out and let it sit on the counter for five to 10 minutes. Even better is if you have it in smaller amounts, so you're not like taking out your baller jar, to, you know, which is then constantly changing every time you're taking it in and out of the refrigerator or freezer. Wow. <laughs> Amazing. Now, one thing we haven't talked about is, um, you know, after the agitation process, the actual wash bags that you use, um, you know, what sizes do you use and how do you actually use the, those bags to uh, remove any other particulates that you want out of, of your hash? Sure. Okay. So I use the four bag system. There's a total of eight bags you can use. I use the four bag system. That is 220, 160, 73, and 45. I use that system because learning from Frenchie, um, there's a there's a method of doing hash making right now where people, and not just right now, but people for a while have been taking single micron sizes. So it's really just a slice of the flavor profile and selling that individually. I happen to appreciate both the full flavor of it and I want to have all the benefits, all the different types of micron sizes within my hash. So to get the broadest amount of, uh, of micron sizes, I collect my full melt or what should be my full melt in my 73 bag. I do not have a 90 bag, nor do I have a 120 bag. So my, my, you know, large catch is from 73 to 159. The reason I do not include the 45 bag is because I have found that the 45 bag has a tendency to have a muskier flavor, a, like a, an earthier flavor that leaves an aftertaste that I think disrupts some of the clarity of the flavors. So I keep that between 73 and 159. Plus, 73 is known to be sweet spot. 90 is known to be sweet spot. And 120, for the most part, is a sweet spot. So theoretically, pulled all together, you should be able to get the most phenomenal melt and also the most full-bodied flavor flavor without worrying about the muskiness of the 40 or the large grains of the 160. So that's where I am. Most people are, when people say stuff like, oh, I do a true, a true 73, that means that they're collecting all the resin that's in the 73 bag and the 90 bag in the 73 bag. And then they have a 120 bag on top. I just have, you know, has no name for it. I'm just collecting everything up until the 160. And the way the bags are effective, the way the, the bags work is that it's a system of sieving where the bags with the largest holes are on the top and the smallest holes are at the bottom. So as the water is draining from your machine or from your, your large container of water with your resin, it is separating the resin by sizes, not by grade. A lot of times people say grade, but it's not a, a grading system as yet, especially since you can have phenomenal melt in 45 and one star in 73. That, that happens sometimes, but this is a sizing situation. However, just using gravity is not enough. And there's one other step to be taken, which we do in dry sift as well. And it's called carding, but here we're carding with water. You use water under high pressure to forcibly push the contaminant through the holes, the contaminant that has, may have stuck a little bit to the trichomes, to push them through the hole to the next 
to the next bag. So if you think about it, once resin has started falling into the bags, it creates like a layer that's pretty impenetrable. So what you will find is that you will have stalks and heads that are actually smaller than the bag that it's found itself in. And until you do the process of full cleaning, because that's really where the hash making happens in the sieving and carting back and forth so that only what you really want is kept in the bag. And that mat and, and therefore your bag matters because when you have really crappy bags you get on Amazon, the hole sizes are not the same or the seams are not done well. So you'll find that after a while, the resin sitting in the middle of the bag will make the bag open up a little bit. So therefore you can't really depend on this being, you know, 73 micron. You're losing a lot of things in your 45 bags. So your tools are super important and bags are expensive and worth it 100%. Right. So with dry sift, you call it carding because you're actually using a card mm-hmm. to sort of weave, wave back and forth. Uh, and, and, and with um, ice water extraction, you're using water to push through, um, you know, those contaminants that may have mm-hmm. stuck to your, your trichome gland heads. Mm-hmm. All right. Perfect. Well, uh, you mentioned also before that, you know, you've judged um, a lot of hash competitions as well, all internationally. I know uh, we were in Barcelona. Uh, you've done Masters of Rosin and Terp Tower, um, Invitational, Monsters Cup, Copa Mexico, a lot of different judging. What What is your judging criteria? How How do you go about deciding, you know, which hash is the best, you know, out of, you know, a, a large amount of amazing ha- chunks of hash or pieces of hash? <laughs> It's hard. I mean, I'm sure you judge a lot of things. It's hard. Uh, they give us these criteria. I think it's um, appearance, smell, taste. Appearance, smell, and taste. And not effect because you're, you're smoking so much, it's a little bit hard to really talk about effect. So what it looks like, you know, really, really matters because it's given the same kind of weighted thing. Me personally, I can appreciate something being phenomenal, the, the Terps being there, but it not being the ideal thing for me. Um, maybe something that's really heavily sweet. I don't like Terps like that. However, I can still judge that these Terps are really here. Will I put that in my top three? Probably not, because for me, it's not great. But the Terps and the, the melt was fantastic. The look was amazing. But overall, that's not the best experience for me. And I feel like that's, the unfortunately, the downside of the way we do cups right now is that because all the judges have their own preferences besides standards of quality, then what's hot, like right now, you know, the papayas and things like that, those things are, you'll find per year that there's like a a wave of what wins based on what's hot. So that part is kind of, you know, spurious, but I feel that you can tell a lot from what it looks like, what it smells like, how it's presented, and how you feel once you take that hit. You're not going to necessarily know to say that like, oh, well, it took 15 minutes to come on. Well, if it took 15 minutes to come on, that's not that's not the way to go with that hash. But, you know, I was feeling like a million dollars or I was feeling pensive. That's really doesn't come into to play. It really comes down to how much can I be impressed from the beginning. So if it's a creeper, that's not what you put in, in, the, in the cup. No one cares about creepers. They want to feel that immediately. (laughs) Excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. I really do appreciate you coming on the show. And also, you know, there's a lot of people who learn these techniques and keep them to themselves. But yet you have filmed hours of free tutorials 
uh, on Instagram and YouTube. Uh, you have all your techniques laid out there for people. And I think it's really important and special. And you're really, you know, an amazing ambassador for uh, hashish. And I know that you all, you also say your niche is hashish. Yes, right. <laughs> um, you've been on uh, Viceland, Bong Appetit. Uh, you've done uh, so much in a relatively short period of time, uh, you know, as you know, a public figure in the hash world, but it's really amazing what you've accomplished. And I want you to let people know uh, where they can find out more about your techniques, um, where they can follow you on social media and, um, you know, how they can get into this whole thing themselves. Yes, I do believe in passing along the education because I don't know if you know how I got to to learn so much. It wasn't just Frenchie. It was, you know, Frenchie, but the opportunity he gave me to write for Weed World magazine about other hash makers. I have five years of writing about the techniques of other hash makers. And then I have taken bits and pieces, learning from everybody along the way. So that's how I came up with the Dutch Touch. And I feel that because people have been so forthcoming with educating me, it is my duty to be that forthcoming. You know, I am a, a consultant and people pay me to come out to their farms and help them. But at the same time, I feel the average person should be able to grow your own seed, grow bud yourself, and the average person should be able to make your own. So I can be found on YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, on all social media as The Dank Duchess. Um, my website is www.thedankduchess.com. And if you want to know something about making hash, Danny is right. It really is super simple. There are a lot of videos out there. On my YouTube, I have quite a few videos about making hash and taking a agency over your own wellness. And I am always open for messages and DMs. So I look forward to helping you along this journey because I'm always learning and we learn together. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you so much for coming on to Grow Bud Yourself. Uh, I definitely want to urge my listeners to check out the Dank Duchess uh, online and watch some of those videos. So thank you very much for coming on the show. Uh, we will be back with more Grow Bud Yourself. All right. Thank you so much to the Dank Duchess. I, I, I feel like uh, everybody's going to learn a little something or a lot of something about hash making from that segment. Yeah, very cool interview. We appreciate uh, the Dank Duchess coming on the show. We didn't even mention that uh, she's the Dank Duchess and I'm Danny Danko. <laughs> yeah, it's all D's all around. Right? Yeah. Nice. Yeah, a lot of alliteration. Very exciting. The this, Dank Duchess and Danny Danko. You guys should get like your own your own show or something. I would watch that. You can solve mysteries, maybe. Or, I don't know. There you go. Well, from alliteration to cultivation, mm. uh, here we are. I think it is the cultivation segment. Yeah, this is the, the cultivation segment. This is where um, we drop some cultivation knowledge for our listeners. And uh, each week, you elucidate the act of growing by, by discussing a topic in greater detail. So, so what are you going to discuss this week? This week, I'd like to break down uh, the different types of seeds uh, that are available uh, to cannabis growers in the marketplace. There's a lot of confusion out there. I get a lot of questions about this. Um, so I just want to go through the basic big three, which are regular seeds, feminized seeds, and autoflowering seeds. Uh, and we should just start with regular seeds. Um, and there's different advantages and pros and cons to all of these different things. Um, regular seeds are basic seeds, like when a male plant 
uh, male, f- you know, plant produces male pollen, and that male pollen lands on a female, you know, cannabis flower. Uh, what results from that combination is regular seeds. And basically, if there's no artificial interference, uh, those seeds are going to turn out to be either male and or female at about a 50-50 rate. Now, that doesn't mean it's always exactly 50-50. There's ways to manipulate that rate as well. But really, you know, that's, you know, it's impossible to tell the gender of regular seeds uh, until you plant them. Uh, a lot of people will tell you to, you know, soak them in water or do this or banana peels and things like that. Ultimately, you know, you're going to get about half male and half females. Um, so you're going to need to plant roughly twice as many seeds as the amount of female plants that you want to harvest. Uh, so that's one of the cons there. Um, but, you know, regular seeds from a reputable breeder should be stable F1 hybrids. Um, and if they are F1 hybrids, they have uh, hybrid vigor, which is really important. It gives you, it's a tendency for the plants to grow stronger than even the parents uh, in that first filial generation. Um, and that hybrid vigor is, you know, is, you know, very important to uh, cannabis growers. Uh, you just get a real strong plant. So when I tell people, you know, to, when they're growing mother plants to start with, an, you know, F1 hybrids that are regular seeds, it's because of that hybrid vigor, because you're going to keep that mother plant around for a long time. And if it has hybrid vigor, um, your plants will all have it as well because they're clones of that plant. Um, so use regular seeds to find your keeper mother plant. Um, the pros and cons. Uh, regular seeds tend to grow hardier. Uh, like I said, they have that hybrid vigor. Um, so they're faster, they're stronger. Um, the cons are, like I said, there's no way to really tell the plant's sex until it's grown out. So you're going to be, you know, spend time, energy, uh, soil, nutrients, all of that on plants that eventually, you know, if they're male or the ones that come up male, um, you're going to be killing. Uh, so, you know, there's some wastage there. There's t- time and space and materials that are wasted on growing those male plants out. Um, and again, you need twice as many seeds uh, to grow the same amount of females than if you're using feminized seeds. Now, feminized seeds, uh, they're basically made using pollen from a hermaphroditic female plant to pollinate a female plant, sometimes even selfing that same female plant. Um, and over generations, what happens is breeders uh, can produce seeds uh, that create plants with no male chromosome. Uh, so the seeds reliably grow into female plants. Now, that guaranteed female plant is very important, but if you're getting feminized seeds from a not a reputable source, uh, you may end up with seeds uh, that some of them may be hermaphroditic. And that can be a real problem because male pollen in a garden full of female plants, even a small amount, will seed the entire garden. And uh, if you've ever had that happen, you know how devastating that could be. Uh, the plant reverts all of its energy from creating female flowers to creating seeds and you get buds that are just filled with seeds and uh, not seeds typically that are of any kind of value either. So that's, you know, one of the issues um, with that. But if you get them from, from, you know, a good breeder that knows what they're doing, then you'll be getting guaranteed female plants, uh, which saves you time. Um, And, you know, like I said, the cons are there's the possibility of hermaphroditic plants. Uh, lots of people love to grow feminized seeds because they avoid, avoid wasting that time and space growing out males that are basically undesirable. So 
you know, that's, uh, that's the difference between regular seeds and feminized seeds. Then uh, you have autoflowering seeds. Now these are a whole different picture uh, because they have ruderalis genetics in them, which is basically like Russian hemp plant genetics that, you know, or any kind of uh, plants from hemp plants or cannabis plants from a, of a northern climate or a high altitude with a very short uh, flowering season. What happens is those plants have acclimated to those regions and rather than begin flowering uh, at a specific time of year, they just begin flowering at a specific age or height. So when they get to a certain height, depending, you know, sometimes a foot, sometimes a foot and a half, uh, they just automatically start flowering regardless of the photo period. So you can grow them under 18 hours of light and they will still flower at a certain size. Uh, and, you know, typically autoflowering seeds are also feminized uh, because you certainly don't want to grow autoflowering males um, to fruition anyway, because why bother? Um, so, you know, the pros and cons, uh, it's fuss free. Uh, there's no re need to worry about lighting schedules. Typically people say 18 hours on, uh, six hours off. You can do 20 hours on four hours off, uh, but you never have to change it. You know, you just set the timer and leave it. Uh, the plants also, you know, they end up being smaller typically, although they're, you know, starting to get larger and larger because that they have that short period of time that they grow, um, they tend to be smaller. So that's stealthier in a lot of cases because they're not these big, obvious cannabis plants. Um, they're also uh, somewhat hardier in a lot of re ways because of the ruderalis genetics and because they have that, um, you know, genetic material that goes back to the past of... of you know, being in those harsher climates, a lot of them can can be more resistant to powdery mildew and things like that. Um, it's a shorter growing schedule with autoflowers. Uh, you know, you can plant them and come back and harvest them 75 to 90 days later, uh, rather than having to go through that long vegetative stage. Um, some of the cons, uh, you know, obviously, because of that ruderalis, you're going to have a slightly less potency in those plants, you know, uh, ruderalis are, are closer to hemp and, and certainly don't have a lot of THC. Uh, different breeders have, have accounted for this in different ways. Um, the other thing is, you know, because they're smaller plants, you're going to have smaller yields. Uh, so those are, you know, basically the pros and cons. Another thing about autoflowering seeds is they allow growers in those high altitudes uh, or northern latitudes to actually like grow out plants that finish uh, in time for them to harvest without having to use light deprivation techniques. So that's the differences uh, between three major different types of seeds, along with the pros and cons of, of, uh, of and, and different situations in which you would want to use them. All right. Very good. Uh, it's always interesting to get that uh, breakdown of seeds. I think that's a question a lot of uh, growers have that we get. Yeah, I mean, particularly beginners, because that's mm -hmm. the beginning, you know, the first thing you want to do uh, physically, once you've set up your, your system is actually get your seeds. And, and then there's so many options and, and varieties out there, it's hard to know, you know, where to start. Exactly. So now, uh, hopefully, people have a better idea of where to start, thanks to that little seed primer. And speaking of growers, uh, this is the time in the show where we answer some grow questions from our listeners. So, um... If you have a question that you would like uh, answered on this show, please do get a hold of us. 
The email address is info at growbudyourself.com. And you could also get us on socials where he is at Danny Danko. I am at Mike Check G. The show is at Grow Bud Yourself. What do you say we get started here? Let's do it. Okay, first question is from Alex, who writes, Hey, Danny. Hey, Mike. Love the show. I'm new to indoor growing, and I was wondering about inflow of fresh air in my 4x4 grow. I use a 4-inch AC Infinity inline fan with carbon filter to pull about 200 CFM, which is a cubic feet per minute, uh, out of the tent, but I want to ensure ample fresh air and carbon replenishment for the plants. Do I need to match another fan with 200 CFM of incoming fresh air? Or will the pull from the inline be enough if I leave a vent open? Secondly, if I were to leave a vent open and allow the 4-inch inline to pull in fresh air, will I have issues with light leaks? Uh, what's the best way to get that carbon replenishment? So what do you think? Yes, uh, good question. Uh, you do not need a 200 CFM uh fan for your inline because you have that pulling the air out now it's pulling it out through the charcoal filter so that's going to slow it down a bit but still you know that negative pressure of that fan pulling out through the carbon filter is going to pull air into your grow uh, as long as it's not entirely completely sealed up now you mentioned that you have a vent that you can leave open if you do leave the vent open a you want to make sure that you know, there's filtration of some kind on that intake vent because you don't want to be sucking in insects and things like that. Secondly, you asked about light leaks. And so you have to create some type of a way for that vent to be open without allowing light in. And there's different sort of uh, vamps and things that you can put on the uh, inside of that vent that will allow the air in without allowing light through. Um, and carbon replenishment, uh, you know, the Typically, you know, air, regular air has 300 to 400 or so parts per million of carbon dioxide. So if you're pulling that in and you're getting a good amount of that and you have your oscillating fan in your grow moving that around, um, that's a decent amount of CO2 and you're not going to see CO2 levels drop to zero. But you can also, uh, in, in particularly for a small grow, you can supplement with CO2 without spending a ton of money on a tank or a, a generator by purchasing, you know, these little kits that they have that are, you know, sometimes based in mushroom uh, production, but they're small uh, buckets or bags that you can buy at the grow shop that uh, you activate. And hopefully, you know, the good ones will give you 60 to 75 days or so of carbon dioxide production within your tent. And you can raise the, that three to 400 parts per million up, you know, closer to a thousand or more by using one of those. Uh, you can actually really boost CO2 levels and thus get bigger yields uh, by using those uh, much cheaper alternatives. So, you know, they, they only run for one flowering cycle, but again, you know, you can just purchase another one and it's much cheaper than getting a tank and a regulator or a CO2 generator. Okay. Uh, thank you, Alex. We hope that helps. Uh, let's move on to Dante, who writes, um, Hello, I love the podcast you guys speak of real nitty-gritty information unlike others. Uh, your selected guests are great and helpful. Well, thank you, Dante. Um, you spoke highly of BC Northern Light at the end of episode four. You praised their uh, grow boxes. So I'm in the market to purchase a grow box, and I'm looking at 
the seven pounder and that is a combo offer from bc northern lights that includes uh the mothership a power cloner and a producer royale um, and the benefit of that is it provides a continuous cycle uh, harvesting around one and a half to two pounds every eight to ten weeks i own a condo so i have concerns with the smell uh, what are your thoughts on this? I have a closet space of six by five. What could be my other options that would give me a perpetual harvest? So uh, what would you say to Dante? Right. Well, um, you know, the initial outlay in buying a, you know, BC Northern Lights grow box kit like that uh, is, is substantial, but uh, it really saves you a lot of trouble in building something of your own. And Perpetual harvesting is not easy, especially when you're starting from scratch. Uh, you mentioned the smell. You know, these boxes are built to contain those odors and also filter them out. The, they also provide a drying machine, you know, a drying box that also filters the air as well, if that's a concern, you know, post-harvest, which it sounds like it will be, especially when you're harvesting that often. Uh, you're looking for that continuous cycle. So, you know, I, if you have the money and you, you, you can outlay it uh, for now, I would recommend going with that seven pounder. The mothership is a, you know, a place to keep your moms. The power cloner is where you will take your clones and the producer Royale is where you put those clones uh, into production. So, you know, I do think that, you know, that's, you get what you pay for and these machines are, you know, uh, outstanding. They're the, you know, Rolls Royces of uh, grow technology, you know, indoors grow boxes. Everything is touch screen. You know, we've mentioned all this in the past. Uh, and so a lot of your problems are solved for you. If you wanted to build something of your own, that would be the equivalent. Uh, a, you would still be laying out a decent amount of money. And B, you would also uh, be doing a lot of work and a lot of kind of uh, R&D that's already been done for you when you uh, purchase a kit like you mentioned. So I would say go with the BC Northern Lights and, uh, you know, just you, the money that you spend now uh, will all come back to you in the future because you're going to be you're going to get started right away. And within a harvest or two, you'll be paying paying back for all of it and then some. Okay, very good. Thank you, Dante. Uh, we hope that helps you out. And let's move on. We've got time for one more. Um, so let's go to Grasshopper, who writes, Hey, lads. I uh, discovered your show a few weeks ago, and I've been listening nearly every night all the way from Scotland. All uh, right. It's been a, yeah, right. Uh, it's been a great listen, uh, especially during these times. Uh, so I have a couple questions. Uh, so let's break this up. Let's do uh, his first question, and then we'll come back and get his second one. Uh, so... Uh, Grasshopper writes, uh, I was interested to hear you say a few shows ago uh, that the pH for soilless should be 6.2 to 6.5, and with hydro, it should be uh, 5.5 to 6. I grow in cocoa and always understood that to be a form of hydro, and my research suggested that it should be done uh, with a pH of 5.5 to 6.5, which I've always done as a swing between feeds. Is this old and outdated information? Uh, also, I wondered if there should be a slightly different pH between veg and bloom. Uh, so what do you think? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think you're fine at 5.5 to 6.5, although I think you'd want to err on the lower side with cocoa. 
I think 5.5 to 6.0 is more ideal uh, in that range. Um, but, you know, your plants aren't going to die at 6.5. And I think if you keep it between uh, 5.5 and 6.5, um, you really don't need to make a, a difference between veg and bloom. Uh, basically, all nutrients can be taken in, you know, in that range. So uh, as long as, you know, you don't go way below 5, you know, or way above 7, you're pretty much in the mix there. Okay, very good. Um, let's move on to this next question from Grasshopper, who writes, Also, I've tried Scrog a few times before and didn't really find much success. I think I kept filling the net until the stretch was done, but heard you say uh, let it go once in flower. Is it better to let it just go vertical once the lights go 12-12? Yeah, I, I would recommend basically once you go to 12-12, you really don't mess around too much more with uh, the you know, tucking in of those different uh, shoots. Uh, I think at that point, just let things go vertical and they'll, they'll work their way up through the screen as they begin that flowering process. And uh, you'll be forming flowers above your screen rather than having the plant, tr you know, starting to pull up and then form flowers. So I would recommend, uh, you know, basically right after you go to 12-12, stop messing around with... Uh, tucking the shoots in you know into the screen and just let them grow up and at that you know that the stretch should stretch up rather than out is where you should be all right very good uh thank you grasshopper great to hear you're listening all the way over there in scotland uh please do keep us informed on your grow um that does it for our q a this week but if you have a question please do get in touch with us uh the email once again is info at growbudyourself.com uh, what do you say we take a little break and come back and put a bow on it? Let's do it. All right. It sounds like it's time to wrap it up. 14 down, man. We've That's done it. Right. Yeah. Amazing. Yes. Uh, we appreciate you guys for listening. Definitely want to say thank you to DJ Jacques and Winstrong. The song is strong. Uh, thank you to Paul Armentado from Normal. Thank you for sure to the Dank Duchess for teaching us a lot about hash making. Uh, and thank you to Vapor.com where you can use the code GBY for Grow Bud Yourself to get 15% off of all the different vaporizers and products available on there. And yeah, that's episode 14. I hope you guys enjoyed it. How do you feel, Mike? I feel good. I was just thinking we should get um, Jacques and Winstrong to do another uh, spinoff. We could have like a the, another hash special so it could be <laughs> make hash yourself. <laughs> that would be great. Because, of course, be we did the free free hash uh, That's right. episode. That's right. We did. Yeah. That would be awesome. Yeah, well, look into that. Uh, thank you to all our Patreon supporters. Uh, we got a lot of stuff for you guys as well. Uh, thank you to everyone who's been on our YouTube page and uh everyone who's gone on and uh liked us and rated us on itunes that always helps uh for sure and yeah i think it's time to put this one in the books yeah let's do it man all right see you guys next week <laughs> <laughs>